Welcome to another episode of the SS Cinephile, where we travel from movie to movie exploring the ins and outs of music, screenwriting, and collecting lethal alien life forms. We are your hosts. Andrew Jakes, resident composer. I am Edward Pronley, our resident writer. And me, Jacob Meixner, today's undercover android. Today, we are going to test out the theory. If you scream in space, can anyone hear you? We, of course, are talking about the horror sci-fi crossover, Alien. So, before we get into it, we like to rattle off a few facts here, just to give us a little bit of context. So this movie came out in 1979, uh, with a budget of $11 million, U.S. gross $89 million. So, based on stats that we've done before, that movie has done exceptionally well, just in the U.S. alone. Worldwide, it's recorded to do about 106. So, not a ton better when you add in the worldwide, but still pretty good. Mm-hmm. Movie is directed by Ridley Scott. The story is by a couple of folks. We have Dan O'Bannon, who does the screenplay, and Ronald Shuset. This movie stars Sigourney Weaver, Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, Ian Holm, and a few others. The music is by Jerry Goldsmith. Ed, would you like to help us out by reading us a synopsis? Absolutely. Let's dive into the synopsis. And though this is a 40-year-old movie, spoiler warning ahead. So, you know, if you haven't had a chance to go out and see Alien yet, this is your last opportunity. In the year 2122, Ripley and the rest of the crew of the Nostromo are woken up by their ship to investigate a mysterious nearby signal per company policy. The crew investigates the signal in alien spacecraft, only to discover too late that it's actually a warning to stay away. Inside the spacecraft, Kane, a crew member, stumbles across some large alien eggs, which hatch and a facehugger attaches to his face. The crew brings Kane back to the ship under protest from Ripley, who wants to follow quarantine protocols. They attempt to remove the facehugger, but to no avail, fearing that Kane will die if it's removed. After a short time, the facehugger falls off of Kane's face and he appears to be alive and well. During their next meal, however, the crew is eating happily when suddenly Kane starts convulsing. They set him on the table only for a terrifying alien creature to pop out of his chest, killing him in the process. The alien flees as the crew splits up to go look for it. As the crew hunts the alien down, they get killed off one by one, eventually discovering that the alien has grown exponentially in a short amount of time. Ripley wants to kill the creature by blowing it up, but Ash, another crew member, protests. Ripley tries to talk with the ship's computer to see why they can't neutralize the alien. The computer informs her that capturing the alien and bringing it back to Earth was always the mission, and that the crew is expendable. Ripley tries to warn the crew, but Ash attacks her, revealing himself to be an android and a plant for the crew's employer. The remaining two crew members save Ripley, and they decide to destroy the ship, but Ripley becomes the last remaining crew member as the others are quickly killed by the alien. Ripley starts the self-destruct sequence and boards the escape vessel, only to discover that the alien boarded the escape vessel with her. Thinking quickly, she buckles herself into the seat and opens up the doors of the ship, sucking the alien out into space. As her ship heads home towards Earth, she goes back into cryosleep, preparing for a long and lonely some journey the end end of movie nice so as per the huge why don't we go around and do a little bit of a gut check a little hot take maybe not a hot take hot take not yet hot take i liked this movie (laughs) probably the least hot take that's a very cold take especially if we're in deep space uh but since since you spoke up ed what do you think what were your reactions this time around i've always enjoyed this movie i think even though it's it's kind of a slow burn in the beginning because it takes a little while for the alien to actually, you know, get going. I still think just the tone and the vibe of the film is really well done. It's incredibly atmospheric. And I think it is best viewed in like a dark room, which is not how I viewed it this time around, but I highly recommend it because I think I viewed that for my first viewing of the film and that was spectacular. So yeah, I, I, I still absolutely love it. I enjoyed watching this again. Right on. Andrew, how about you? I'd have to echo that in general. Jacob, you and I might have a similar story. I feel like our dad sat us down and said, we're going to watch this movie. And we didn't really have a say in it. And, you know, it's one of the one of the movies that he showed us that I'm glad he did because it, it's awesome. It's sci-fi, but it's also very grounded in horror, but it's a lot more relatable objects than in something like Star Wars or something similar, especially around the same time period. It's more grounded and there's a lot more like film technique used that's very fun to watch and revisiting it has been really fun because there's a lot under the surface that's actually happening with this movie that maybe you wouldn't realize just watching it so doing the research on it has made me enjoy it even more heck yeah i want to key off of a couple things that you said there i really like that you brought up the fact that it's an awesome movie 
I think it's not only awesome in the fact that it's a great movie, but it's awesome in that it strikes awe. It has a really big scale to it. It feels very real. Brings me to the second thing that I wanted to point out. You use the term grounded. I think that's a great way of framing the movie because even though it has this awesome scale to it, it definitely has a very human-centric element to it, as we'll get into with some of the storytelling and some of the, the cinematography and such. The way the movie is shot technically and a lot of the technical aspects, as well as the plot itself and how it treats its characters, has a very human element, and I think that makes it feel like a very grounded movie. I just wanted to key off those two things. Great movie, all in all. I actually did watch it with the lights off, and I can can attest that is the best way to see this movie. Also, this is a way scarier movie than I remember it being, all told. Yeah. Lots of jump scares in it, and and we'll talk a little bit about the jump scares later, but way more jump scares than I than I remember there being. So yeah, it's it's sure to be a treat. So with that, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the art style of this movie? Edward, while you were giving your initial takes, you had talked about the space that the movie has, the, the feel to it, the aesthetics. So I think I was reading that Ridley Scott and the art director, who I believe was H.R. Geiger. Is that how you pronounce his name? H.R. Geiger? Yep. I believe they wanted to really make the ship look very industrial very much like it was pieced together and it has that feel and it has that very almost timeless feel to it they weren't trying in my opinion to capture some kind of futuristic style or they weren't trying to imagine what the future would look like in terms of spaceships or whatever they were just thinking hey what is the most practical and functional use of a spaceship and it would be this. It would be a whole bunch of pipes running around and, and really tight spaces because it just needs to be functional. It doesn't need to be fancy. And that helps to create this very claustrophobic feeling throughout the film, I think, as well. And everything is so compact and so squeezed together. And the art has a lot to do with that. The set design feels fantastic and real and gritty. And I mean, they're, they're space workers. That's what it's supposed to feel like. They work for the corporation, I believe. We definitely know that the the company is Wayland because of future films. But yes. in, in kind of the original construction of this film, it's kind of ambiguous. And I think that's kind of on purpose. It's just supposed to be a faceless corporation, probably just a stand-in for most corporations and how they treat their employees. And as we'll learn later in the film, their expendable employees. The art really starts to shine once they get to the planet and we see the alien spaceship and we see the entire set design of that facility, the giant alien in the chair, the really freaky looking giant alien in the chair, all the eggs underneath. It's amazing. It is so well done. Geiger and Ridley Scott create this beautiful world with the art. Beautiful, but incredibly horrifying. And they do it so well. It's something that feels like it has so much backstory to it, but they're purposefully not sharing with you every detail, but you you get so much just from the art that's on the screen. It, it's it's kind of funny that you, you say that it feels like it has so much backstory, because there actually is a good amount of backstory to it. H.R. Geiger was actually stopped by TSA or Air Enforcement Security while he was working on the artwork for this film because they thought that it was like schematics for some sort of bomb or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was so foreign to them, but it felt so real that he got stopped. And that's that's the kind of gravity that we're talking about here. It's like artwork that is so otherworldly or, or so extraterrestrial that it actually evokes fear in people who know nothing about it. You know, not, e- not even the fact that it's a part of a movie. I also want to point out, as I was reading and doing some research, the reason that Ridley Scott reached out to H.R. Geiger to participate on this project in the first place was actually because of a published work that Geiger had called the Necronomicon, which oh. the namesake, of course, is the fictional like book of spells from the H.P. Lovecraft universe. So just going back to the fact that this has a rich history, like, yes, it has a very rich history. The the art seems very real, very authentic, and is done by an artist that has 
you know, not necessarily a sordid past, but a lot of deep influences that go way back and go way back into kind of the depths of, of modern horror in a lot of ways. So I did not know that about the Necronomicon, but I think that is really interesting because what Ridley Scott did when he saw that and he asked H.R. Geiger is he already saw this potential for kind of incorporating fantasy horror into this sci-fi world. And so understanding that he was already thinking about that when he brought Geiger on board is amazing because that's really what it does feel like at points, especially when they're on that ship. It feels so organic, like the ship structure and everything that's going on over there, which is really foreign to the sci-fi world, having those organic looking technology and it's just beautifully well done i like how iconic so many things about this movie is to the point where you can see really any screenshot and you know what movie you're talking about especially with the alien which in this movie we don't really see like a lot of and that's part of the horror aspect of it but you you see enough that you know the silhouette and you know like a little bit of its anatomy but the art design is so specific that you know you know what you're looking at and it gives it what you guys are talking about and touching on it it gives it this this real element that makes it that much more terrifying stuff like star wars didn't really i feel like didn't really get to that level because it was so focused on the action and stuff like that that it didn't really it didn't allow itself to be steeped in this rich, you know, history-based creation that this has and completely agree that you see almost any shot of this movie and everything looks like it has a story and you don't know what that story is, but that's how it was designed to look like it has a story and you want, and you want to know what that story is. There's a lot of functional elements like you were saying Edward where it's like, yep, that makes sense. That's probably what it would look like. This isn't this isn't fantasy. This is definitely grounded in some reality it's pretty cool that you draw the allusion to to star wars as well uh, in some of my research I, I read that there's a set designer that worked on this ron cobb who also did some of the work on the cantina scene which of course is a totally famous scene for having some of that same lifelike quality that we're talking about it feels like it has a culture it feels like a real space and i yeah. I think we see a lot of that translate into this movie and the work that's done here. Speaking of spaces, I know, Jacob, you brought up something which was completely a foreign topic to me in the pre-show about liminal spaces. Would you like to talk more about that? Yeah, I, I don't know how much additional research you did. I assume some additional research, so you wanted to talk about it a little bit. I just found it really interesting watching this movie this time around because having known about that concept for some time and having that in the back of my mind, that was one of the first things that, that kind of came up to me. A liminal space for our listeners is a space that's kind of a transient space. It's a, it's a space in between spaces, if you will. And there are lots of really good and lots of really bad examples. You, you can do some of your own research on that. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on liminal spaces in my feeling of it. And that's another thing about liminal spaces is there's a little bit of subjectivity, right? And so in my take on what a liminal space is and how liminal space feels, this movie tends to be steeped in that. There's lots of really interesting shots that don't have characters, but will acquire characters over time or kind of the reverse and with the claustrophobic nature of the set and the design of everything, there are these spaces that kind of feel like they're in between states or kind of in between existence at all. We talked a little bit about how the ship design and the set pieces are all kind of pragmatic and not totally futuristic. And I feel like that that leads to kind of this eerie quality that, again, is like is kind of like a space in between spaces. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And I think that's a really fascinating take on what we're seeing in the movie. Through my very limited research on liminal spaces as well, I also noticed there was this running theme of solitude. Some of the examples they gave on some of the websites said something like a liminal space could be a school hallway when the school is closed or a school classroom when the school is closed, you know, just a place that is normally filled with people, but is eerily empty. And it's it's weird to view it in that state. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about those shots where we see the ship, but we don't necessarily see any people around, especially in the beginning, when we're just getting the ship, and we're just 
just seeing the ship kind of come back to life and filming the movie in that way and creating those liminal spaces for us to see on screen, I also feel like really contributes to the alone and the solitude that the characters are feeling throughout the film as well. And so I just think it was a really great notice that from you, a great, a great thing to spot in the film. Thanks. I think my favorite, like, in this topic of liminal spaces, as far as, like, transition, I think one of the more maybe on-the-nose ones that I always appreciated is that you have this very industrious ship, and they go to this alien planet and so there's this industrious versus organic nature and then what happens you know kind of in like an old old storytelling kind of way is that they meet the organic comes onto the industrious ship and some things just don't click and that's where the tension comes from like you have the you have the corrosive acid blood and that just messes up the ship beyond all recognition and just different stuff like that like there's a transition and a a flip-flop from this now organic thing is in this you know metal capsule yeah And we're back. On the other side of this break, uh, we want to talk about cinematography. We've already talked a little bit about some of the really creative shots that are used in this film, how the spaces are filmed, characters coming in and out of set. Let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of the cinematography in this movie. So right off the bat, I think one of the great things about the cinematography is some of their first person shooting, which is a really great way to increase the tension during the film, because more than likely when you're watching it, you're contributing that to the alien that is possibly watching them, and it could be anywhere. And it increases the tension because it can demonstrate the alien watching the characters in the ship, because the alien could be anywhere at any time, and that helps to heighten the horror of the film. But the first-person shooting can also contribute to us as an audience kind of partaking in this story, in this really horrific story, which is kind of what horror is all about. It's being able to experience that terrifying feeling, but also carry us gently to the other side of the tunnel where we're totally safe. Absolutely. I want to call out here, one of the first things that I started doing research on this film, even before we had decided to take this on as an episode, there's a really great video essay about one scene in particular. We see that there's that scene where Ripley is fighting with Ash, who we later realize is actually an android in disguise. And in that moment, it's, it's really brutal. It's completely out of left field. We don't know why Ash is beating up on her except for that she was able to expose you know some sort of larger conspiracy but shouldn't he have just as much stake in this as as her in that moment there is a there's a really brief moment where the cameraman actually hits a wind chime in the scene and ash actually turns around and makes notice of that and it's it's little details like that that really contribute to us feeling like we're a part of this, us feeling like we're in the ship, and it really goes to that heightened sense of horror that we feel. That's incredible. I I need to now go back and rewatch for that shot. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, that's also really cool. we'll put a link for the video in the show notes uh, for for interested parties. Yeah, I think the biggest part of cinematography that I've always attached myself to when thinking about this movie is the use of lighting big part of cinematography in general but even from the young age that we saw this movie there was such a brilliant use of siren lighting the ship is under attack and you have all these really dark hallways that are all like full of mist and whatnot but then you have these yellow rotating lights that are rotating super fast and they do such a good job of letting the darkness take over the scene and that light is the only light source and anything could happen in between the light showing on the character and not showing on the character and Edward I actually remember in high school 
I went over to your house to play the alien game on Xbox. And I was like, this is going to be terrifying because that's such an easy thing to recreate in a video game space. And that's exactly what they did. It was as terrifying as watching this movie because of the simple lighting effect. And to go back to what we were talking about before, about being grounded in reality, like that's just like how sirens work. Like it's such a it's such a realistic effect that is also effective for the tone it's trying to portray. And I just remember watching it for the first time and every time since then that it's like it's such a good use of lighting, pulling the rope in the same direction as the movie's trying to portray. I feel like that has a really nice parallel to a a previous episode of ours as well, where we're talking about the attention to detail and the bumping the lamp with respect to who framed Roger Rabbit, right? It's it's a very very much the same thing as, as I was talking about with the wind chime, as you were talking about, Andrew, with the lighting. And of, of course, in the who framed Roger Rabbit case, it's both. <laughs> We'd encourage you all to go check out our previous episode where we talk a little bit more about that and, and what bumping the lamp actually means. But there's a lot of that attention to detail going on in this movie. It shows. It's not always super obvious, like the wind chimes. You, you both didn't, see that and you've seen the movie you know a handful of times but you probably still felt it which speaks to the brilliance of the movie even the subtle details which are not obvious to any one viewer help us all feel like we're a part of the movie i think lighting also comes into play with how the alien is shot because uh, Ridley Scott did not want to show the full alien costume. There's actually pictures of it online. You can see the actor in the full alien costume just kind of standing there. It does not look as intimidating as they make it out to be in the film because of the brilliance and excellence that they use in, in actually filming the alien and its form and its terrifying actions. But I believe what they do for a majority of the film is they actually film a lot of close-ups of the alien. Whenever the alien is on screen, they, they kind of try to make it as close as possible, or they try to obscure it with lighting and with the mist and with just the other special effects. The only time we really get the full-fledged image, I believe, is at the very end when it's shot out of, like, or when, it's, when the engines kind of burn it up. Even that was probably a really creative shot or really creative like strategic decision because with it in space like that, kind of in a space that we know doesn't have gravity in the same way that we're used to and it allows it to flail its limbs in kind of a haphazard way, increasing our perception of how large it is, increasing our perception of kind of how gangly this thing is, which up until this moment, at least in this movie in particular, before there was a broader alien universe, we really had no idea what this thing was until the very end shot. And even after we've seen the creature in its entirety, it's terrifying. Yes, it absolutely is. So now that we're outside of space or outside of the ship, let's talk a little bit about some of the special effects of this movie. It's been really fun to do the research into to looking how this was made because this, similar to your 1969, 2001, and 1977 Star Wars, used miniatures to show the space travel, and they did it just as successfully as those two other movies. You open up on this shot of a, an eclipse, but then you go over to this huge ship floating in space, and it just it looks like a freighter out in the ocean, just sort of drifting there. And that's exactly what it's supposed to be, just a massive ship coming in from an extremely long mission. And all of the other miniatures that are used to show the grandiosity of what they were trying to portray is just done really well. But in a different light compared to those other two movies, there's a lot of obscurity in what is shown like you don't see like the whole ship. You never get like a full on here's the front of the ship, here's the back of the ship. There's a lot of ambiguity which leads to this horror feeling that we that we've all been talking about. You don't see the whole alien, you don't see the whole ship. You don't know exactly how large this planet is. There's a lot of ambiguity with size in this movie and the miniatures almost lean into that because especially at this time frame of, of movie history, it's like, yeah, that's a miniature, but also it looks pretty good and it's supposed to be huge and it it kind of messes with your brain a little bit it's it's really cool absolutely not only do they lean into it i mean they like full-on take advantage of it i would say yeah yeah it's, it's it's worth noting too in doing our research this movie was up for a couple of different awards academy awards even in particular though it did win best visual effects nice 
well earned. And I think that show is just based on all the conversation. Yeah, that it makes makes a ton of sense here. I also truly believe that miniatures. I mean, currently in modern day films and present day films, the CGI has gotten absolutely incredibly amazing, where if we watch it in 10 years, we might not still be able to totally tell that some stuff was CGI. But miniatures does create its own timeless vibe to it, in my opinion. I think that just things look, they don't necessarily look 100% real, as if like I believe that they filmed this in space with a real ship, but it does create a sense of realism that does not take me out of the film, even though I know that we're looking at miniatures, if that makes sense. Whereas like, sometimes there's some really terrible CGI in films, even today, where I'm like, that's, that's gonna, that's just taking me right out of the film. I can obviously tell that that is a very poorly created computer graphic whereas in this film you are watching just expertly done cinematography and special effects that help not break you from the film experience and i think that speaks to the artists involved in this case in particular we see miniatures used in a way that does suspend our disbelief now is it perfect no but it it might not ever really be perfect because of course, it's it's not real, but it is near as good as it could possibly be because there are people who have done this before, who have worked on these things before, who are experts at executing on this practical effect. And I, I think it's actually not that different from what you're talking about. The, the top-of-the-line CGI folks in industry these days can also execute some mind-blowingly, totally realistic-seeming worlds and spaces but that is still a high bar. You have to do a lot of work to be able to produce those things. And when done poorly, that will still be way worse than these practical effects that we get from the 70s. Yes. Well, why don't we do a 180 and let's talk about one of our favorite topics on here. Let's get into the music. What does the music say? What are the notes? During our pre-show, I actually just had the soundtrack on, like just in the background. Scary. Really? Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. It really just showed the true nature of the horror music in this. This is a very clever soundtrack. There's a lot of discussion in the research that I did specifically into the music about this is post-Star Wars, which used this huge symphonic score, but it's also post-2001. I'm going to reference this movies a lot, I feel like, where you're using these these modern like modern music like 60s you know classical music that's like really avant-garde and out there it does both of those it handles them both really well and in doing research there's actually a very interesting like almost battle in post-production about that but before i get into that i wanted to sort of share very fun pretty intricate musical things that lent to this sound that was created because it's pretty unique even by today's standards like the the different sounds that are going on so so one thing that i didn't even know about going in is that these fun instruments are used one a conch shell what yeah it's used like a horn instrument and then a didgeridoo which you can look up pictures of it's just like a super long wooden pipe that creates like a super low drone sound that you can get a lot of fun sounds and then to my surprise there's an instrument called the serpent which looks like a serpent. You should look up pictures of it. I didn't even know that this instrument existed. Basically, it has the mouthpiece of a brass instrument, so you're you're buzzing your lips on it, and because of its size, it creates a low sound, so it's actually a predecessor to the tuba, but it's not exactly a tuba. Again, if you're using instruments that you don't recognize, you're going to get a very ominous feeling that it's like, it kind of sounds familiar, but not really. That's crazy. And if you combine these instruments with this, you know, modern 20th century classical writing, I mean, you get a lot of fun, crazy music out there. Another aspect of the the music that was very fun to explore, and you can see a lot of like analysis videos on this score, is something called aleatoric writing, aleatoric music. And what that is, is basically a suggestion for the musicians. So up to around this time in music, we were trying to hone, we as in music history, we were trying to hone like 
exactly how we wanted the music to be played. And sometime in the 20th century, we started actually giving that power to the performer to the point where you get a piece like Therenity for the Victims of Hiroshima by Penderecki. And that entire piece is a suggestion. So what it, what it means is that you have an ensemble of, of 52 strings in this case, and it says like, hey, play a note between these two notes. And it doesn't mean like play note A, B, and C. It means any pitch between these two notes. And it's just a whole bunch of aleatoric stuff like that, and you get wild, wild sounds. And, and it's a lot of extended technique. And so again, you hear a string instrument, and you're like, I know that's a string instrument, but I've never heard it make that sound before. And if you get a whole orchestra doing that and a really well seasoned composer like Jerry Goldsmith writing the actual music down you get a really really good soundtrack and I think this soundtrack for how celebrated it is is actually very underrated I think it's a very smart and clever soundtrack and again pulls that rope in the direction of horror and very much lends to this very scary setting real briefly I want to want to ask about your experience with making music for the horror genre because while you were talking one thing that i suddenly recalled is that i had stumbled across this really interesting youtube video we can link again in the the show notes about the nightmare machine which turns out to be a like specially crafted instrument to essentially produce horror music and it falls into this category of, of instruments that are all kind of custom built that don't actually have factories that produce them and so I, i'm just kind of interested in your take on on that and doing producing music for the horror genre and what role instrumentation has in that i haven't heard about that specific nightmare machine but i know the concept the biggest like example that maybe we all know about now is the theremin which is this instrument that you don't touch while you play it it's used in the doctor who theme and it's used very similarly in the rick and morty theme but in the early 20th century no one had any idea what this electronic sound was and so you get it in horror films of the 40s and the 50s that's just eerie because you don't know what you're hearing and that seems to be like a very prominent its starting point for a lot of horror film soundtracks and as far as my experience it's really actually great because one of the biggest experiences that i had was writing music for actually edward's film senior thesis project yeah also link in the the show notes yeah i'd used a string quartet so as instruments that you knew it's a very interesting way of writing because you're almost taking a back seat purposefully to the story rather than writing like these you know these themes and these cues that you know you get from john williams films or, or other more traditional Hans zimmer scores and you're really playing a backseat role and lending directly to the feeling that the film is trying to evoke rather than a more surface level like this is this person and this is this person and so it's it's pretty fun as opposed to like a concept we've talked about before a few times the light motifs right as for example right. you've got music that's catered towards specific characters and, and specific themes around characters this is similar in that it's around specific themes but those themes are way more abstract and way more vague and more aesthetic. And they're not around something as specific as characters or other stuff. It's really more about lending to the overall aesthetic of the the piece. Yeah, absolutely. And then also within my research, there's actually a super fascinating history, and it has more to do with the, the creative control over movies. Basically, there's a battle between Jerry Goldsmith, the composer, and the editor of the, of the whole movie, Terry Rowlings. And Terry Rowlings, what he did in editing is he put in a temp track, for those of you who don't know, is a track that the editor slash director will use in post-production before the actual music is written, just so that they can try and get close to what they're trying to accomplish while editing the film and then they'll put in the real music later but temp tracks in general can cause a problem for composers because then they find themselves trying to write for the temp track rather than write for the movie and what actually happened in this movie is they put in a temp track of a previous soundtrack that Jerry Goldsmith wrote for a movie called Freud and in the final cut of the movie they kept in the temp track still music written by Jerry Goldsmith, but for a completely different setting. Oh. And there's interviews with him saying he'll continually be congratulated on this successful soundtrack. And he's like, yeah, but I didn't, I don't really like it, actually. It doesn't fit. I don't think it's a good fit. And beyond that, which I think is even more appalling, is that 
the end of the movie, there's someone else's music used entirely. A 1930s piece by Howard Hansen, who I don't know, but it's Symphony Number no. 2, is used over the credits. And so it's not even related at all to anything, but they kept that in the cut of the movie. So that's what's in there. Then you still have this other score that was written by Jerry Goldsmith, like in its entirety, that was recorded. And it actually wasn't released until 2007 is when this like complete score was was released where you could hear all of the different stuff that actually wasn't used in the movie as well as the stuff that was and I think it's an interesting story of creative control in in the post-production world because there there was this butting of heads and I think Jerry Goldsmith as a composer got the short end of the stick and it's a bummer because it's such a great score and such a brilliant score and it's such a celebrated score but what you're actually getting in the movie is not that score yeah and they wow. they just had very differing views more specifically jerry goldsmith wanted a little bit more of a romantic cue in that symphonic like john williams style for the intro and they didn't and so they used something completely else and then sort of in a in a reversal when the pods are opening up from waking up from cryo sleep like they wanted jerry goldsmith wanted a very ominous opening up thing kind of in comparison to the egg opening up later in the film and the editor and and director wanted a more romantic cue actually from again a previous jerry goldsmith movie and that's what's in there and so i think it's just a fascinating history and to also be surrounding an actually brilliant score just makes it all the more interesting so i i was i was planning on coming into this episode with like little snippets of music but the history behind it actually was more interesting and the whole score is brilliant to begin with so i would i would encourage people to look up the 2007 complete standalone score rather than you know what some people call like the butchered score that's actually used in the movie it's fascinating stuff is there any cut available whether released for real or released like just by a fan that has his full score that was released in 2007 with the movie i don't think that exists i think every official version of the movie has the butchered score that's part of it and i think one of the problems that we've run into now even since it's been released is like we don't know where jerry if he had if jerry goldsmith had complete creative control we had no idea where he would want to put everything and so what we get is actually just this pool of music that is mostly his but it's put in different areas and sometimes faded out there's entire articles written about what music comes from where and where it's placed in the film mm-hmm so I, I would be interested to see like a fan edit, like you were saying, with just the music composed by Jerry Goldsmith for the film and try and like piece it together and take out all the other stuff that the editor and director like kind of forced in there. Mm. I would love to see that for sure. But again, just the soundtrack by itself is can, can completely stand by itself. There, there are some soundtracks out there that kind of have to be with the movie otherwise it's boring or you know too too connected to the movie but this is definitely one especially doing this research where I could see myself like buying the LP and just listening to it by itself because of how brilliant the score is without the rest of the movie which is surprisingly rare wow I, I find that kind of interesting too just because as a as a lay person at least watching the movie no doubt the score is brilliant I'm not not trying to undermine that at all but it is very subtle it very often takes a pretty extreme background and if you're just you know a uh, movie goer on a you know summer blockbuster kind of excursion you might not even take notice of the score of this movie so it's it's it is very interesting and again I'm not trying to undermine the fact that it is an excellent score but it's 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 interesting to hear that it is such a robust and, and such a, sta- a score that can stand alone, even if it's not the intended score, which kind of just raises more questions for me. Yeah, it shows a mastery of Jerry Goldsmith that he shows in a lot of his other scores as well. But given the history and the the creative freedom that he was allowed on this being like a horror movie, it really stands out as a, as a piece of music. And again, the history is just very wild to me. And we're back. 
So on the other side of this break, let's get into one of our favorite topics here at SS Cinephile, storytelling. Storytelling. One of the things that I think we all enjoy doing, or at least we have for the past couple episodes, is talking about the midpoint of this of the script and of the movie and the midpoint has a whole bunch of definitions we've talked about a few of them but for this movie you don't really even need a definition because it's a very jarring moment that really just changes the tone and the pace of for the rest of the film and i think we're all in agreement of it being when the alien bursts out of the chest at the at during the meal yes i would agree yep cool i think that's a, a pretty clear shift yeah. I think one could argue, and I would submit into evidence just to, to bring this up, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about it, but there is also a fairly significant tonal shift in the confrontation between Ripley and Ash, or thereabouts, when mm-hmm. we realize that this, this entire plot was planned. This is roughly two-thirds of the way into the movie, I think. So it's definitely over like the halfway point of the movie, but all the characters in the movie kind of go from a little bit more uh, reactionary to being more proactive which is one definition that we we've exercised before i do want to say hey there is a really significant tonal shift in in that yes. as well but i but i totally agree the alien coming out of the chest is is very much the midpoint of this movie and that's actually what you brought up is a really great point because it is it is a huge moment in the script and a great twist and one of the definitions that i've heard that called before is a reversal so in a screenplay you have a lot of reversals and this screenplay actually has a ton of them as well i mean when they first land on the planet and they discover that the signal is not like a distress signal but it's a warning signal that's a great reversal it it, it creates this beautiful tension for us when they get into the ship and they realize that you know it's filled with alien eggs and one of them attaches to Kane. another great reversal that's actually i would argue the end of act one and it just continues to push us further into the script and so this movie has a lot of those moments that are just great little twists that keep the suspense and the horror going so it's just really well done really well written would you would you go so far as to say at least this is something that i'm thinking so i'm kind of wondering what y'all think about this but the sheer number of reversals that are kind of thrown at you in this movie kind of lead to this push and pull pacing in the story, um, which I think contributes to the overall unease and sense of horror. Every time you think you understand something about this world and about the film that we're watching, about the story that's unfolding before us, there's some subversion of that expectation, some change up, some reversal. Yeah, I would agree. I think that that what you just talked about creates like arguably like the perfect pacing for a horror movie you have like the the push of the alien the the face hugger and then you have the pull of the face hugger falling off then you have the push of the chest you know the chest explosion and you have the pull of like we need to figure out how to kill this thing and then you have the pull of the android and you have the push of all your crewmates are dead and then you have the straight back and forth of self-destructing the ship and trying to not self-destruct the ship and and then the final one of being on the escape pod and the alien and still being with you you know you can clearly look at all those points as pushes and pulls and it's non-stop from the very beginning you you as an audience member wake up from cryo sleep and you're with specifically ripley the whole way but but the whole crew the whole way and even the the, the waking up from cryo sleep right right off the gate there's this bewilderment and this confusion why were we woken up from cryo sleep we weren't supposed to wake up for another you know several light years because we're still so far away from home or wherever our destination is yeah so another great thing about the script is the characters ripley specifically being the lead character and one of the strongest written characters in it also kind of known as a strong feminist icon and it's just a really interesting thing because as the story of the production goes ripley actually wasn't supposed to be a female character until like a couple weeks before sigourney weaver was actually cast well it was i believe it was a male character in the script or at least the idea of a male character right up until casting and i just i think that's interesting Unfortunately, I was reading some articles, and obviously it's also just a thing you can see in the film. The feminist icon is subverted a little bit by the fact that the film does like to show Sigourney Weaver not always fully dressed at times kind of demonstrating the unfortunate male gaze of the film industry. It also doesn't help that her authority is kind of undermined at several points in the film. I do think you could argue that that has a little bit more to do with the story, regardless of the gender of that character. In, in particular, right, there's the, the significant confrontation about how Ripley doesn't want them to come back on board after our guy gets face-hugged, because that breaks protocol, that, that puts everyone 
on the ship at risk. She was right. And she was right. (laughs) And someone pulls rank on her, which I I believe is Ash, ultimately. It was ultimately left up to Ash, which, you know, then makes the twist into our third act make sense, and it it, it gives it purpose. But I do think it's worth mentioning that, again, her authority was undermined and is undermined at several points throughout this film. So that it is a little additional subversion of the feminist icon. I think one of the things I've always liked about her as a character, and I don't know if it's just because all the other characters die or, or are double agents, she always seemed like the most round character in a story that doesn't allow for much roundness because it's such a simple plot. But she, like uh, specifically like what you were just saying with like the protocol thing, it's like she was the only one that brought that up. She's like legitimately smart. Like she's just a real person and she knows these protocols and she's smart and she can survive and given all of that roundness that's given to her character it's you know no wonder that she does survive this attack even though it's obviously written pre predeterminedly but if, if you'll if you'll forget it's a movie for a second of course she's going to be the survivor she's She's right. like wicked smart. It's really, it's really fun to watch and, you know, have her take control in the, in the moments that she does get to take control. I will say, though, even though I do completely agree that she is the most well-rounded out of all the characters, I think that the other characters are a testament to the realism that we've talked about a lot within this film because they do all feel like incredibly real people just with their dialogue and the way that they talk with one another and the way that they act. They feel like just real crew members who have this experience of being with each other this entire time, which is really fascinating and actually just a weird, fun connection. But just saying that with the sequel to this movie, Aliens, James Cameron actually wanted to capture that same feeling. And so he actually filmed the film, I believe, in reverse, filming the very first scene last so that the actors had a chance to be with each other throughout the filming and so that that chumminess in the beginning of the movie looked really real and intentional. I know that's a totally different movie than what we're talking about right now, but it's the same universe. So that just fun fact popped in my head. I thought I'd share it. (laughs) No, and and I think that's really cool. I mean, I think that's a testament to just how well that kind of world building played out in this movie. We see multiple scenes like the you know the middle of the movie that we're talking about where we have the alien come out of the chest that's already the second or third scene that we see all of them having a meal together basically they're all enjoying each other's company and laughing and and carrying on there's a lot to be said i think for kind of the sound design in that space that technical of an aspect helps play into this characterization of this realism that we feel i know we're not really talking about that we've kind of gone on to talk about writing so i apologize for that that brief backtrack but i i do think that's that's a really good call out i mean we even have this red herring plot a little bit right where two crew members who are kind of like the peons if you will or the engine workers are trying to negotiate for like better wages or you know it's, it's a very classic like labor struggle that turns out to really be a dead end plot but it doesn't feel misplaced because it rounds out these characters maybe not as individuals but as a group as a crew and i think that's that's really palpable when you're watching this movie now we want to talk about some jump scares i'm very interested to know what i'm very interested i i promised edward some jump scares here no i mean we i mean i don't know if we need to spend a long time talking about this but it, i think we can use it as a really nice segue into you know what what we want to probably finish off the podcast with because i already kind of said it at the top of the show i was kind of blown away by just how many jump scares they inserted into this movie while i was rewatching it i was taking notes of how many jump scares because i was like oh there's only going to be a couple they might be like film defining moments nope there is probably somewhere between half a dozen to a dozen jump scares in this movie they happen roughly every 10 minutes the first one does happen 30 minutes in so you get about 30 minutes of no jump scares but then they just they they are popping off forever after that now of course a couple of them are kind of false alarms there's i think two or three that just end up being the cat Hmm. there's there's some other plays along with that also i want to make a note jump scares are a little bit subjective but i tried to be kind of as objective as possible just based on how they're filmed and and you know all of the other technical aspects around them all of the ones that i picked out seemed very intentional and i for one find this particularly interesting because i have been kind of a late bloomer to appreciate the horror genre or the more vague i guess kind of scary 
movie genre. And one thing that I always disliked about them, because I felt like they used cheap tricks to engage audiences. And so bring it back to the jump scares, jump scares are frequently a scapegoat for people saying, hey, that's a cheap trick. That's no fair. You you got me to engage because you scared the crap out of me. I don't feel like they're cheap in this movie. Even the ones that are twists being the cat or what have you, they all feel really earned. They don't feel like they're jumping out at you, even though there is a very like first person kind of aura to this movie. They, they all feel really earned. And so I just want to go on the record, I guess, and say this movie littered with jump scares. And we've talked about it over and over again. This is very much a horror movie, which also was not something that I had in my head for whatever reason. Even having seen this movie before, it, it's it's proved itself as a horror movie. Um, upon rewatches, you realize that it's almost more a horror movie than it is a sci-fi movie. And it uses, uses jump scares and it uses them in an appropriate way. I would agree. That's it. I mean, I mean just just yeah. a little monologue there. <laughs> no, I, but I mean, I think that's I think that's really good, and I think that's really important. And I also think that can lead us into our next segue, which is what is the purpose of this movie? Because I mean, if you ask the director, I think I read a quote in an article that said his entire purpose of this film was just to make it terrifying, was to create these moments of sheer terror, and any other deeper meaning is purely just speculation by an audience. But what do you which, think? That's fair. That's fair. I think that can totally be appreciated too in, I don't know if I want to call this a red herring because I feel like there is some deeper meaning to kind of glean out of this, but the confrontation again, we see the confrontation between Ash and Ripley. That is naturally a very pivotal moment in the movie. Maybe not that confrontation exactly because there's, you know, a minute before it when we actually have the great reveal. And then that's again, kind of reversed in a further subversion when we realize that Ash actually was an android. So of course, he's coordinating with mother with the corporation but there is maybe something to be said there about is human life expendable should we be acquiring you know quote weapons or alien life forms at all costs why do we need to acquire alien life forms and and again maybe those are more unintentional than they are intentional and i think that shows by by the the quote but i do think there are interesting points to bring up I mean, I also think that they're really interesting points to bring up and they're obviously put into the film. And so I think it also just comes down to the fact where it's like, do we, you know, if, if the if the artist's intent, if he says, you know, this was my intent with this and this is what all that it is, does that mean that we're not allowed to interpret it any further than that? More and more, I'm starting to think that the audience interpretation supersedes artist's intention. So as far as this movie goes, I think if he wanted to make a movie that was completely terrifying and that's all he wanted to do, then great. That's cool. He succeeded at his goal. But I would argue that whether it was intentional or not, there were other things about this movie. Because if all he wanted to do is make a scary movie, it wouldn't be as in-depth as this movie is. He could have done it way cheaper, way quicker, without so many people. I think the biggest evidence of that is the twist of the android, because that that kind of blows the whole story up into this mega like conspiracy thing. And it starts to ask these questions about other life forms and weaponizing and, you know, the higher class and the lower class and deciding humanity's fate and all these all these different things just by that one twist. And he could have just not done that and it still would have been a scary movie. So whether again, whether he did it by accident or he was just doing or the writer did that, like there are other things to get out of this movie than it's just a scary movie. So uh, yeah, I would I would side on the audience interpretation. I completely agree with that, but I also find it very interesting because I think yes, there there is definitely a deeper level that I think all three of us really feel to this movie that I think can be interpreted, that we all think can be interpreted. But it is really interesting because yes, his if he just wanted to create a scary movie, he could have done that, but by putting in so much effort and by creating these layers of story, he he did create a truly terrifying, almost masterpiece. Like he put his heart and soul into this is almost what it looks like. And I would actually argue that adding this level of conspiracy almost increases the horror to a whole new level. Because I mean, what's more terrifying than something that is not only out of our control completely, but something that I think was both a fear back. I mean, it's been a fear, I feel like all throughout the history 
of America, but even still now, these conspiracies, this fear that there is some power that is deciding the fate of all of us. And that's exactly what happened with the crew of the ship. There was a higher power that said, you don't matter, and I get to decide how you live or die. I was going to ask you all the question if you think this movie is more horror or sci-fi, but I, I, I think I already know the answer. So now I'm actually going to kind of pose a suggestion, and I'm interested to know what you all think about it. So first of all, this movie is definitely a mix of horror and sci-fi. I think we've all spoken to that aspect of it. But based on the, the sentiment of this conversation, the quote by, by you know, Mr. Scott himself, it seems as though what was created here was really a horror movie that used sci-fi as a backdrop, that used it as a, a framework. And so, yes, it, it is kind of a genre-bending kind of crossover movie, but I think it is a horror movie first and foremost, but it's a horror movie that fully leverages sci-fi and uses sci-fi as a setting. I would completely agree with that, yes. I think there, I mean, there's obviously sci-fi elements to it, but really, I feel like you could take this story more or less and put it really in a whole bunch of different settings. I mean, they could have been exploring the sea, you know, and they could have been sailors or whatever, and oh, there's a distressing lot, you know, the bottom of this ocean or whatever, and you have to go check it out. I mean, there's, there's different backdrops that you can place it in, and it still has those horror elements to it. Could be two different kinds of cheese. Sorry, that was a call out to your blog post, Ed, about <laughs> whether or not characters Ooh, matter. Man, for a second, I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, was, that's okay. I was like, uh, yes, I'm, two different I'm, kinds I'm, of cheese. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry the joke was lost. For, for those of you listening, please go and check out Edward's article on whether characters or plot are more important. But I do think this is a, a prime example of what he talks about in that article. Here we have a situation where the plot is is very, very important to the story. It really drives the the pacing of everything. It, it gives you a reason to care, but that can't come without first and foremost caring about these characters and having characters that we really like and empathize with. And I think a lot of that comes down to this world building, this sci-fi world that's built up in this movie. So in all of this talking about artists and tensions and audience interpretation and what it says and doesn't say horror sci-fi all this stuff i think one of the big questions again with this android twist and this perfect killing machine there's a question that usually comes at the end of a lot of a lot of good films is what does this movie say about humanity and i think even though you know this relatively simple plot maybe doesn't speak to that as much as some other movies there is still something to say about it because we have this grounded look at this crew of people and i would just say there's as far as what this says about humanity i think ripley's character is just a really good you know i talked about her being grounded i think it's it's just really good to be adaptable and a lot of the other characters don't seem to be as adaptable or they too stubborn as in they're an android that that has literal programming but yeah i I guess adaptability might actually be a big part of what what i get out of this movie and why it works in the horror genre of her surviving due to her adaptability and her her smarts and her application of them I, i totally agree i i would even submit maybe this is just a little bit of my own projection but i think this film does a lot to kind of ooze empathy. We see, there's no I told you so's. I mean, Ripley very easily could have laid into everyone and kind of made it about not following the protocol and, you know, her bureaucratic nature. But what we see instead really has a lot to do with, well, that's what happens. Now we still we still need to go forward. We need to figure out how to, you know, fight this thing off as a team, how to survive as a crew. And despite everyone else failing, I, I think in large part due to their lack of adaptability and kind of maybe their bureaucratic nature or, you know, cog in the machine style mentality, a lot of them die. But I think it speaks to kind of that that human pliability element where we have this alien versus human situation going on. Ultimately, the human that we've all kind of identified as being the most flexible, the most adaptable, is the one that, that survives. And I, I think that just that speaks to what it means to be human fundamentally, basically. I would say I absolutely agree with everything 
that you both just said. And just to add my little take onto that, I think that what the movie says about humanity is that humanity is complicated. We have so many different facets of humanity that we witness throughout the movie, including that of the corporation, which is faceless, but we still see, you know, corporation is greedy. And whereas, like, the captain and the rest of the crew, there's that point where they want to get back into the ship after the facehugger has attached itself to Kane and Ripley's trying to stop them. And from their perspective, that's compassion. And that's, you know, let us in. We just want to be safe and we want to be helpful. And I actually think it's quite interesting because at that moment in time, Ripley doesn't show any compassion. In fact, she's making her calculated moves a lot like the alien would without that sense of like empathy and morality. And it's it's very interesting. Humanity is just complicated. Like we can say that that we are 100% different from the alien, but like at a couple points in time throughout the film, I think we witness that humanity in some ways is exactly like the alien. And so it is it is just a really interesting look at the many different areas that makes up humanity. Alrighty. Well, on that note, if you liked our film analysis, you can let us know at admin at sscinephile.com. If you hated our film analysis or something we said made you angry, you can email us at trash.bin at sscinephile.com and address it as Dear Trash. We do read all emails. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at sscinephile. To find more content about movie analysis and learn when we're posting our next episodes. Till our next journey, this has been SS Cinephile with your hosts, Andrew Jakes, resident composer, Edward Pronley, resident writer, and Jacob Meixner, today's undercover android. But face hug. Um, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. You don't matter, and I get to decide.